Let us now hear the word of God, preached from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." This is God's holy and inspired Word. It contains all that we need for faith and life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Bible. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray Sanctify us by Your Word. Thy Word is truth. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards is probably a familiar name to you with the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God of 1741. He preached that at the beginning of the Great Awakening. You may know of the religious affections or original sin or the history of the work of redemption 
But you may not know that his first publication was another sermon, which he preached in 1731. It is on the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29 through 30. He entitled it, God glorified in the work of redemption by the greatness of man's dependence upon him in the whole of it. He summarizes this sermon in this way. What God aims at in the, disposi- in the disposition of things in the fair affair of redemption. I'll, I'll repeat that. What God aims at in the disposition of things in the affair of redemption, viz, that man should not glory in himself, but alone in God. That glory of the Lord that Edwards, Edwards was talking about comes through preaching a foolish message in the eyes of the world. For Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but Paul and the other apostles preach Christ crucified. God made foolish the wisdom of the world by His messengers preaching a crucified Savior. And that is what brings glory to God. The preaching of a crucified Savior. With that in mind, I want to summarize the doctrine that we find in this text, in this passage today, this way. Everything about the believer of the gospel is an absolute offense to the world because it sees the cross as utter folly. Everything about the believer of the gospel is an absolute offense to the world because it sees the cross as utter folly. In our exposition, I want to show you four things from this text. A foolish message. A foolish message. Excuse me, a foolish method. Two, a foolish method. Three, a foolish messenger. And four, foolish believers. Let's take them in order. We begin with a foolish message. You know of the story of the church at Corinth by now, a church that had been served by many of the early early church's best servants. Of course, Paul had ministered to them for some time, as did Aquila and Priscilla and also Apollos. They had received exceptional teaching, but it had made them arrogant. In fact, the word had gotten back to Paul saying that they were boasting over factions and sects, some claiming to belong to Paul, some to Cephas, and others Apollos. Whichever whichever name might gain them the most notoriety. Worse yet, this presumptive knowledge had led to immorality. And Paul now attempts to humble them and to wake them up from their spiritual lethargy again by reminding them, That as Christians, the very core of our identity is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the recognition of this should produce astounding humility. Notice this in a number of places here. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are are perishing, 
Verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And again, in, two, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And although we didn't read this today, notice also chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul begins by laying for his audience the message of the cross of Christ. That to the world believes is a fool, foolish message. It is called folly and a stumbling block and as something which absolutely defies the wisdom of men. That leads me to ask, what is that message? The term word of the cross might confirm a number of truths, and I would suggest at least three. It recalls the incarnation. That the eternal Son, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. This is a message that astounds the world. It is a message that is madness to the world. Can it be that God should become man? Can it be that God should take on a body that to save us would require Him taking a body to Himself? Utter madness in the eyes of the world. And to go even further, it doesn't just denote incarnation. It it speaks of the humiliation of the Son. That Son who had enjoyed the glory of the Father's presence and infinite communion with the Spirit now was humiliated. In His humiliated state, the Son of God became Himself a man and made under the law in order to redeem us from the law. It contains his humiliation. Now, if God took on flesh, surely it would not mean his humiliation. Surely it was not necessary that he should come being born to impoverished people in Bethlehem of Judea, to people with no esteem in the village of Nazareth, that even today we cannot absolutely identify with accuracy. Surely, He wouldn't come to obscurity. Yet this is what the Scripture says about Christ. Surely the Savior of the world would be born in a palace with royalty running in His veins. Surely He would not be humiliated by sinful men. Surely He would be honored exceptionally for coming to save the human race. But that is what the Word of the Lord says. That He would be humiliated and shamed for the sake of sinners. It is absolute madness in the eyes of the world. And further still, the Word of the Cross reminds us not only of His incarnation and His humiliation, but also His agonizing death. The death of the Son. The Holy One had been humiliated to such 
an extent that, as the Westminster divines put it, he was made liable to all the miseries of this life, including the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. Everything about this death consists of humility and humiliation. Although no doubt Christ has also undergone exaltation, He rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father and intercedes for His people, soon to return to judge His creation. Nevertheless, it is the cross that characterizes His people now to us. This is absolute madness to the Greek who cannot see it as possible that God should take on flesh. This is a scandal to the Jew who demands signs. This is not the sort of sign that in their minds symbolized blessing, but rather the curses of God. Nevertheless, that is the message of the cross. That tiny phrase embodies an entire host of gospel truths that we must meditate upon and form our lives upon. It is a word that is utterly heinous to the fallen world. It is a word that is despised and rejected by men as Christ himself was despised and rejected of men. This leads us to the second heading, a foolish method. Verse 17 says in a transitional statement, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the Christ, excuse me, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ is synonymous with preaching the gospel. And notice it is not with words of eloquence, because that would empty the cross of its power to save. Verse 20 and 21 continues this theme. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I think that a better translation follows the King James Version. I'll I'll read this. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. In the ESV translation, it emphasizes what is preached. But in the Greek and Latin text, it seems to me that the emphasis on how Christ is preached. And if this is right, it is not only foolish to preach Christ crucified, But it is folly to preach at all. It is folly to preach at all. It's not just the preaching of the cross of Christ that is staggering to the world, but the very mode of preaching is nonsensical to the fallen world. In other words, it seems ridiculous to the natural man to see preaching as a means of converting and saving sinners. That is to say... If you actually believe the Westminster Shorter Catechism 89, which says, The Spirit of God maketh the reading, 
but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto Christ. If you actually believe that, the Word, the world looks upon you and pities you. For you are satisfying a fool's errand. In fact, many church members would say the same things. If you say that the sermon is something more than a public speech, or a motivational address, or an encouraging word, or entertainment, you are deemed by the worldly church member as crazy. And if you are called to the ministry, that is what you are called to do. To be a fool for Christ's sake. And to proclaim a message according to a foolish method. But there's more. Not only is it a foolish message and in a foolish method, the person who does it must consider himself from the world's vantage point to be a fool. That brings us to our third heading. A foolish messenger. Paul says in chapter 2, 1-4, through four, this, and I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Don't you see what he's saying here? Not only is the word of the cross folly, but this is the message which I preach, Paul says, and nothing else. Not only is the medium of preaching a fool's errand, but that is what I do, Paul says. I preach. I preach like a fool. Not with the supposed wisdom of Socrates or uh, Plato or Aristotle, but I preach in weakness and in much fear and in much trembling. And I'm not sophisticated. I, I don't preach with eloquence, with the eloquence of the rhetoricians. I don't speak with the sophists. I don't have a silver tongue. My words were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Not only in the eyes of the world is the message foolish. Not only is it a foolish method. But Paul indicates that he, that he views himself as a foolish messenger. We tend to think that Paul was wise don't we? That Paul's great learning made him wise and made men more receptive to his wisdom. And so he was wise, not with an earthly wisdom, but the wisdom of God. However, we must remember Felix's thought, which expresses the ideas of the world. Paul, has your great learning made you mad? Or think of Jesus. People were astonished when He concluded the Sermon on the Mount. 
They were amazed at him, astounded and overwhelmed by these words. Or perhaps they were a scandal to them because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Yet the Lord of glory manifested himself in the flesh. No doubt the clearest teacher that anyone has ever heard before or since. No doubt the most effective communicator in all the world, the fountain of wisdom himself, and the rulers of this world crucified him. I would like to speak to the aspiring ministers now. If you are faithful to preach the crucified Savior, the world will think you are a fool. The world will think you are a fool. My friends, do you desire this? Why are you entertaining entertaining the thoughts of the minister? Have you weighed your calling carefully and cautiously? Have you, in fact, discerned a life of the ministry? Or to go further, have you discerned your life as being considered a fool for Christ's sake? If you deal faithfully with the Word of God, you will be considered a fool. I could say that, in fact, to all of you who profess faith in Christ. But the emphasis is greater still to those who week upon week ascend the pulpit. Week upon week you will stand up there and if you preach faithfully, you will attempt to preach all things through the cross of Christ. A message that most of the world will hate you for and despise you for and consider you a fool. Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to be a fool for Christ's sake? Nevertheless, this is not just for the minister, but also for the believer. And and now we turn to the final heading, foolish believers. In verses 26 through 29, Paul makes clear that believers are fools themselves. And this is God's way. This was intentional. Notice verse 26 and following. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose What is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence, in the presence of God. Notice what he's saying. The reason you, O Christian, have been called. Notice the emphasis on election. He elected you. You believe without wisdom or strength or noble birth. And that is what God intended to put all things to shame. To demonstrate that God is the one who saves. And you, believer, are a test case of that. 
That is the reason why you were chosen, selected, or elected. Because you were not wise in the eyes of the world. You were not powerful. You were despised because you demonstrate that by believing a fool's message. You are proof positive that the word of the cross is folly in the eyes of the world. But by, leave, but, but by believing that, you believe in the power of Christ only to save you. And those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. This passage lends itself to several appropriate applications, which I wish to consider with you now. And these questions, these applications might be considered as an answer to a final question that I'm going to ask of this passage. Why has God done it this way? Why has God done it this way? Or why has God determined determined to save His people through a medium that the world considers so strange and even foolish? After lamenting the world that sees cross, the, the cross of Christ as folly, and after clarifying that God did it this way to shame the wisdom of the world, Paul summarizes his findings in this word. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. So that you would consider Christ as your wisdom. That's the first answer. It is to say the world may think him foolish. The world may despise him. The world may crucify him. But to you, believers, he is wisdom. The fountain of wisdom. There is no wisdom to be obtained apart from him. There is no wisdom to be learned in an ultimate sense from anyone but him. And the reason that you would gladly preach and believe the gospel of fools is that the world has radically misjudged things. They are foolish. They are blind. They they lack wisdom. But to you, he is the fountain of wisdom. Although you may read many glorious books, although you may study with the greatest of teachers, No one will teach you sounder wisdom than the wisdom of God Himself. There is a second application to this sermon. God did this so that you would consider Christ your salvation. Consider Christ your only salvation. What did verse 18 say? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again in verse 30, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and also righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is, we are saved We are enjoying the benefits of salvation because of Christ and Christ alone. He is 
not only our wisdom, He is also our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Why is this so important? Because you and I, my friends, have no righteousness in ourselves. We only are righteous in Christ. You and I, my friends, are utterly unholy and sanctified in ourselves. We are only sanctified in Christ Jesus. You and I, my friends, are utterly unredeemable, are unable to buy ourselves from the guilt of our sins. We are only redeemed in Christ and by Christ. But Christ has done it all for us. He saved us. He imputes to us His righteousness. He he made us sanctified. He redeemed us. This is the message of the cross of Christ. The incarnation, the humiliation, and the crucifixion that recalls the hymn which I frequently repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Only Jesus did that. Jesus has done absolutely everything. You cannot be saved except by Him. Fully and completely, He has fulfilled all righteousness, all all holiness, and all redemption. And my friends, as the Westminster Divines said it, you must simply receive it and rest in it. Receive and rest in the fact that Jesus alone is your salvation. He has not done part of it and asked you to come alongside and add to it. No. He has paid it all. This must be our great boast. I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Or, to put it another way, I make my boast in the Gospel. The world may find it ridiculous. But for us who are being saved, it is the message of the power of God for salvation. He has done it all, and all to Him I owe. Third, God has done it this way so that you would depend upon Christ. Christ not only saves you, but He saves all of His people in the same way. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is to say, Paul's preaching and the reception of it by faith is not in your hands, but fully and utterly in the power of God. Your reception of it, my reception of it, is completely dependent on the power of the sovereign God. Not the wisdom of men, but the power and strength of Almighty God. Therefore, we must depend on God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not because it is not because of us, but solely the triune God. The Father authors this work of redemption. The Son accomplishes all that is necessary for you and I 
to, to be redeemed, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us. So we must depend on the triune God for every aspect of our salvation. I want to close with a story that I think indicates these things quite well. I once knew a man who had been a pastor for over 50 years. As a young man, he had been called to serve a university church. He recalled to me the very first Sunday at the church, and on this particular Sunday, he was pacing up and down his church office, waiting to be summoned to preach. When one of his ruling elders passed by, The elder entered the room and asked my friend, "Uh, what are you doing? You look nervous. To which the pastor responded, I am nervous. That room is filled with a university president, a chemistry teacher, a teacher of mathematics and philosophy and so on. I don't know what I can offer to them. After those words, the elderly man thought for a second and and then responded. Young man, these men have expertise in all sorts of ways. Chemistry, administration, math, philosophy. But there's one thing that they don't have a corner on. They don't know anything about Jesus. And we brought you here to tell them about Jesus. The folly of the cross. We preach the folly of the cross. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God to those who believe. But it is utter folly to the world. Do you believe it? Will you believe it regardless of what it might cost you in the world? Jesus said to count the cost if you would follow Him. You and I will be considered fools if we believe this message of the word of the cross. But we will be glorious fools. We will be glorious fools that depend on Jesus for wisdom and salvation and that know that we only have righteousness and sanctification and redemption in Christ. I ask once again, Will you believe this message? Let's, let's again pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we believe the message of the cross, the cross of Christ, which the world finds absolute nonsense. The world considers folly. But nevertheless, we believe it. We believe this this folly of the cross. Help us to stand firm, although the world thinks us foolish, although the world thinks that we believe nonsense, although the world would have us Consider ourselves fools for Christ's sake. Let us not waver to be fools for Christ's sake. 
And if anyone doesn't believe, I I pray that they will be convinced now of the folly of the cross. Help us to believe. Help give us more faith to believe that Word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.